ECO Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello, and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Juliana Daly. And I am Cynthia Roberts. Later in the program, WFHB correspondents Noel Herhusky Schneider and Cade Young look into how the Charles C. Dean Wilderness was established in light of recent legislation introduced by Senator Mike Braun, which would expand the boundaries of the wilderness area. And now for your environmental reports. The Indiana Capitol Chronicle lists some of the issues likely to be addressed in the upcoming legislative session. The commentary was written by Sam Carpenter. Last year, our power supply was in jeopardy as an extreme freeze and high winds moved in just before Christmas. Coal-fired power plants did not perform well under these conditions. Just as demand grew to meet Hoosier households' heating and cooking needs, many coal-fired plants, along with gas and nuclear generation, buckled under the pressure. Extreme frigid temperatures can cause coal piles to freeze, limiting their accessibility. Cold temperatures can also impact the combustion process, making it harder to burn coal effectively and lead to limitations on water intake systems needed to run coal power generation. These items point to the reliability limitations of coal when it comes to keeping the lights on for Hoosiers. According to Michael Bryson, Senior Vice President of System Operations for PJM, the nation's largest grid operator, the grid saw significant generation outages with about 25% of the grid's capacity failing with Winter Storm Elliott. Coal, gas, and nuclear power were impaired on December 23, 2022, while renewables, mostly made up of wind, performed well. Another challenge on that fateful day was that the transmission grid that moves electricity hundreds of miles when required was having trouble getting power to where it was needed. Hoosiers kept the lights on that day, but we came perilously perilously close to a grid disaster. Coal power generation has many liabilities, starting with being expensive. Indiana's utilities are planning to eventually eliminate coal, coal power generation. More economical and reliable sources of energy are available. In addition to cost concerns, coal is dirty. Burning coal is linked to health conditions, including asthma, cancer, heart, and lung ailments, as well as environmental concerns related to acid rain and climate change. People living in counties located downwind of coal power stations have a life expectancy that is less than counties without coal plants. Coal ash, or the residue left over after burning coal, is currently filling unlined pits along waterways across Indiana and is allowing toxins like mercury and arsenic to seep into our groundwater. While coal has played an important historical role in building our economy, better solutions are now available. In the interest of all Hoosiers, it's time to move away from coal. Eco 
EcoWatch reports on coral reefs have been diminished by very high ocean temperatures of the past summer. They say next year could bring the final blow in massive coral bleaching events that disrupt reef ecosystems. Ove Hoge Guldberg, a marine studies professor at the University of Queensland, Australia, is predicting that coral reefs will experience dramatic bleaching. Hoge Guldberg and colleagues share their predictions in a perspectives piece for science.org. Their observations are consistent with changes in reefs in Florida and the Caribbean. Bleaching events can occur as a stress response to to things such as increasing ocean temperatures and pollution, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Currently, the world is experiencing an El Nino event, which is likely to last through March of 2024, which can influence warmer ocean temperatures. The current El Nino phenomenon could then be followed by a second El Nino year. As The Guardian reported, every instance where there has been a pair of El Nino years since 1997 has been followed by mass coral bleaching around the world. It appears likely that substantial efforts to plant new corals in existing reefs may all be for naught. They could be cooked next year. Perhaps new reefs could be started in waters that were too cool before global warming. Inside Climate Change concluded COP28 accomplished little. Only by going into overtime under the cover of a dark winter night in Dubai, climate negotiators at COP28 cooked up a weak sauce of climate half measures that failed to adequately address the existential risk of global warming to millions of people around the globe, according to leading climate experts at the conference. The UAE consensus COP28 President Sultan Al-Jabbar said represents a clear step in a just transition away from fossil fuels, but the tarnished image of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and its process requiring consensus among nations took another big hit because 39 small island states most effective most affected by global warming were not in the room when Al-Jabbar signaled acceptance during the closing speech. COP28 still says the goal of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius over pre-industrial levels is still possible. Repeating this goal elicited an immediate response from some climate scientists, including Rob Larder, a polar researcher with British Antarctic Survey. Quote, when you see statements like this, you know you're being lied to, end quote. Larder wrote in a social media post, what's been agreed certainly does not keep 1.5 Celsius in reach. Larder was one of the first scientists to highlight the abrupt and alarming decline of Antarctic sea ice this year. The vast expanses of ice at the poles function as one of the planet's main cooling systems by reflecting a lot of incoming solar energy back into space. A permanent reduction of that surface would lead to additional heating of the atmosphere. A huge problem with these meetings is that the final report must be agreed upon by all nations in attendance. This automatically means every report presents an overly rosy picture. Here in the United States, it can be hard to imagine a world without single-use plastic. Even though single-use plastics are designed for our rapid use and disposal, their lifespan is just the opposite. Single-use plastic items persist indefinitely in our environment, collecting in the soil, rivers, streams, and ultimately in the ocean, endangering our food sources and entangling wildlife. And if that's not bad enough, 
single-use plastics don't actually degrade. They simply break up into tiny microplastics that end up in the food we eat and the water we drink. The United States is the number one generator of plastic waste in the world, and on top of that, more than 30% of landfill material in 2018 in the United States consisted of food waste and yard trimmings, a potent source of greenhouse gases, according to the Environmental Protection Agency. We have a lot to learn and teach that there are solutions. What can you personally do to help free the United States of plastic and other trash? First, there is the free Clean Swell app that tracks important trash data while you collect trash during your daily walks out and about. Second, don't litter. Even cigarette butts contain plastic that never biodegrades. Plus, animals will try to eat them. And never place trash in an overflowing trash bin. Hold on to it until you can dispose of it properly. Third, recycle whenever possible, or better yet, use reusable items like water bottles and silverware instead of disposable ones. Fourth, when you visit a beach or park, scan the area for a few seconds to make sure you're taking everything with you. Got it all? Then take an extra five uh, trash items with you. Fifth, you could volunteer. Volunteer to clean up, especially along our parks and creeks. Sixth, be smart. Make smart consumer decisions. Don't take that single-use plastic bag if you don't need it. Skip the disposable straws when you can. And lastly, spread the word. Talk to family, friends, and legislators about the challenges facing our lands and waters and the importance of a clean, healthy earth. It's the only one we have. And now, WFHB correspondents Noel Herhusky Schneider and Kate Young look into how the Charles C. Dean Wilderness was established in light of recent legislation introduced by Senator Mike Braun, which would expand the boundaries of the wilderness area. This is Deep Dive, WFHB and Limestone Post Investigate, where we look into issues regarding health, housing, and the environment that directly impact residents of Monroe County. In today's edition, we are looking into the Hoosier National Forest and the Charles C. Deem Wilderness area within it. This week, we look into how the Deem Wilderness was established in light of recent legislation introduced by Senator Mike Braun, which would expand the boundaries of the wilderness area. Nestled in the northern edge of the Hoosier National Forest sits nearly 12,953 acres of land called the Charles C. Dean Wilderness Area. In 1982, the U.S. Congress designated it as wilderness, protecting the area from significant human influence, preserving its natural condition. The Dean is the only permanently protected wilderness in the state of Indiana. You may have visited this wilderness area while going to the picturesque Hickory Ridge Fire Tower. Or maybe you have heard about it and haven't made it over to see it yet. We went to check it out for ourselves. We're standing in the wilderness near the Hickory Ridge Fire Tower, walking along the gravel path in the thick forest. We can hear the sound of leaves crunching beneath our feet. There's hardly any audible sounds of humanity, with the exception of an airplane or two. We can hear birds chirping and squirrels shuffling in the distance. We reach the fire tower and climb up its moderately rickety metal steps. 
As we breach the treetops, the wind picks up and we can start to see the gorgeous view. From the cab atop the tower, we are surprised to see just how far the forest reaches. The autumnal reds, browns, greens, and yellows cover the hills and ravines and transport us to a place that feels much farther away than 40 minutes outside of Bloomington. We arrived just before sunset and got to see the view with an additional hue of golds and oranges painting the trees. We talked to fellow onlookers and learned that flying squirrels roost in the roof of the tower and jump down after it gets dark. We realized there is more beauty in Indiana than we had previously realized. Descending the staircase at Hickory Ridge Fire Tower, we ran into Kent Wilson and Teresa Harley Wilson, who were about to embark on a backpacking trip to memorialize the passing of a friend. Kent said he was around when they established the land as a wilderness area. My wife here, Teresa and I, were part of the Sierra Club. She came to Bloomington, she was an arts professional, but one of the cool things she did was she wanted to do outdoors hiking. Well, all the people would say is, if you want to see something cool in outdoors, you just go to Brown County. Yeah. <laughs> go to Brown County, have you been Brown? Well, she found Brown County and stuff like that, but then she moved to Bloomington and she got a job and she met me and I said, oh, and she showed up at the Bloomington Sierra Club at the, uh, the uh, down uh, in the library. The Wilsons met Jeff Stant at the Sierra Club meeting Kent just referenced. Jeff went to Washington, D.C. and lobbied hard to get this. WFHB News spoke with Indiana Forest Alliance Executive Director Jeff Stant to learn more about how the Charles Steam Wilderness came to be. Stant was actively involved in the Bloomington Sierra Club as the director of the Salt Creek Coalition, where he helped advocate for the establishment of the Charles C. Deem Wilderness Area. I was very actively involved in the in the effort that, that led to the establishment of the Dean Wilderness. That's fair to say. Uh, the, the it was the Bloomington Sierra Club. I became its cha- its chair, and and we changed the name to the Uplands Group of the Sierra Club at the time. I was also working for the Sierra Club uh, as the director of a group called the Salt Creek Coalition which was a uh, coalition of the landowners that live out in the area where the Dean Wilderness is, the private landowners who live around the the wilderness area uh, and over in the Nebo Ridge area, and and then uh, different conservation groups uh, led by the Sierra Club. And and, um, we we organized a, a, a lot of grassroots support for designating the original Dean Wilderness back in the 70s and 80s. We were trying to get an area to the east of it known as Nebo Ridge um, from 50 years ago starting forward and about maybe nine years into that effort ended up settling for the Dean Wilderness uh, as the compromise of the compromise. At that point, it was a third the size of what we started out trying to save. And uh, today's proposal to expand the Dean Wilderness and S2990 is is uh, really trying to go back and save the area that, that uh, we started trying to save 50 years ago when when the forest National Forest Supervisor at the time, uh, A. Claude Ferguson, first proposed that Nebo Ridge be one of the first uh, wilderness areas in the eastern United States.
Before the land was ever a wilderness area, it was home to indigenous peoples, a few being the Miami, the Delaware, Potawatomi, and Shawnee people. The Native Americans lived here and used this area as early as 12,000 years ago. According to the U.S. Forest Service, the first impact of people on the land may have been setting wildfires to drive prey like musk oxen, mastodons, and giant bison from the forest. The Forest Service says, although there were seasonal villages and crops grown on small plots of land, humans had little lasting impact on the forest. Colonists from Europe showed up in the area during the late 17th century, and by 1809, Native Americans were forced to move further west. According to the U.S. Forest Service, the land was over-farmed and over-timbered, leaving the already hard-to-farm ravines infertile. During the Great Depression, President Franklin D. Roosevelt established the Civilian Conservation Corps to create jobs and develop the natural resources of the federal and state lands. To do so, they went about replanting the forest. Because of this, much of the Hoosier National Forest is roughly 80 years old. Stant described what he believes wilderness is, paraphrasing the Wilderness Act of 1964, which created the legal definition of wilderness in the United States. Well, under the Wilderness Act, wilderness is a is a area of, of public land that's to remain forever wild. It, it is a an area that is in a natural condition. It doesn't have to be virgin forest, uh, but rather it's land that's returning to the forest condition. And in many cases, it's it's older forest that is is returning to the old growth forest condition, which is sort of equivalent to saying it's a virgin forest again. It, it is land that that the government has to take a hands off approach. To its management, the Forest Service likes to to manage the national forests under what's called the Multiple Use Sustain Yield Act, which uh, allows them to manage it for timber production, wildlife recreation, minerals exploitation, off-road vehicles if they so choose, and then they try to have a forest management plan that authorizes these various uses in various areas of the forest. The Wilderness Act says these lands are withdrawn from that multiple use management and they're just to be used for wilderness recreation and the enjoyment of nature the way it is. And, and so it's, it's, it, it essentially ties the hands of the forest service uh, so that it can't go in and log and, and do prescribed burning throughout these areas. It has to let nature take its course. Now, if a fire breaks out, it can let the fire burn unless the fire threatens public safety or private property. But the fact of the matter is the record shows that, that natural fires break out exceedingly rarely in Indiana's hardwood forest. They're a wet forest ecosystem that doesn't burn naturally. Um, the, the vast majority, you know, more than 99.9% .9 of all the forests that are in the U.S. Forest Service's fire database for the Hoosier National Forest uh, that have been started in the last 20 years in the Hoosier National Forest, the vast majority of them were started by people, campers, farmers, you know, that were harvesting adjacent farmland in the dry period, a spark lit up some vegetation. The, the forest actually put the fire out naturally because the, the, the kinetics weren't there for the fire to burn once it got into the, 
the, the forest land. Um, so forests just don't burn naturally here. But if that fire did break out, the Wilderness Act would allow them to let that fire burn, but just make sure they're putting it out if, if they're, it's going near campsites or uh, private property on the boundary of the wilderness. That's what wilderness does. The wilderness condition is land that is wild. What the Wilderness Act does is says we're going to let it be forever wild for public enjoyment and that you can't use mechanized or, or motorized uh, vehicles in, in the area. You have to use, uh, if you're going to maintain the trails, you have to do so with hand equipment or horses, and uh, you can't put new roads through the area. You have to let the area remain just natural forest. According to the National Park Service, two opposing factions emerged during the environmental movement of the early 20th century, conservationists and preservationists. Conservationists sought the proper use of nature, while preservationists sought protection of nature from use. In Stant's view, the two are intertwined. I view preservation as a part of conservation. Um, conservation says that we're going to conserve our our resources, and preservation says we should preserve our resources. I think that to conserve your resources, you do preserve your resources. Conservationists often will say, yeah, but we we are also for the wise use of our resources, and uh, preservationists just want to lock them all up, and uh, that's where the, the debate often is. Um, the the the, uh, the the I would say, as a as a person who's a bit an ardent preservationist, that I've never said we should quote lock up all the resources of the Hoosier National Forest. Rather, I, I'm, I've said some of the national forests should be allowed to return to the old growth condition, as some of the state forests should, and and the rest of the public lands in the state, the state parks and fish and wildlife areas. That it's crucially important to allow a good portion of the lands to just be natural so that we have a baseline with it, which we can compare our, the impact of our management activities to what the forest is doing naturally and, and understand uh, when, when, when uh, uh, for example, animals are declining across the forest, whether it's human activity that's causing it or whether that, that decline is happening in the natural forest as well, and there's some bigger problem. Um, so, so preservation is one of the parts of conservation. Uh, in, in most national forests, there are areas that are set aside from any management, such as logging or burning or road building. And that's what what uh, uh, the preservationist is trying to do, is, is protect those areas, whereas a conservationist is looking at a broader range of activity that is allowed, provided it doesn't uh, cause uh, you know, long-term irreparable harm to the area. Some conservationists think would go as far as saying that includes uh, mining for 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 coal and 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 and, and minerals. Um, you know, others would say, well, that's that's degrading the forest too much. So there's a there's a debate about how far you go with forest uses uh, under a conservation strategy. A preservation strategy is just saying we're setting areas of forest aside uh, to let nature be, let nature take its course. And I would argue that today in Indiana, given how little wild nature there is and how much the public needs nature, 
uh, for, for our sustenance and quality of life, that we really ought to make the primary management of our public lands be about preservation. Uh, but the fact of the matter is today, the vast majority of our public lands are managed through more that, that, that lens of conservation. conservation. And so um, I'm just saying, and others who are supporters of this bill are saying, let's have an appreciable amount of these lands set aside. Uh, so that people can enjoy them. We're not saying there shouldn't be logging in, in anywhere in the Hoosier. Most of the acres that, that are in S2990 are actually still going to permit timber harvest on them. It's just the wilderness addition acres won't, but all of the National Recreation Area lands will. To read the full article written and photographed by Stephen Higgs, visit limestonepostmagazine.com. To submit feedback to WFHB, you can email deepdive at wfhb.org. This is In Nature. This is Juliana Daly with In Nature. Today, I am going to talk with you about the barn owl. The barn owl is the most widely distributed species of owl in the world and one of the most widespread of all species of birds. They are found almost everywhere except for polar and desert regions. They are ghostly pale and normally strictly nocturnal. They are silent predators of the night world. They are lanky with a whitish face, chest, and belly with buffy upper parts. They roost in hidden, quiet places during the day, like a barn. And then at night, they hunt on buoyant, silent wing beats in open fields and meadows. You can find them by listening for their eerie, raspy calls, quite unlike the host of other owls. Unfortunately, barn owls are considered endangered due to habitat loss. Barn owls swallow their prey whole, skin, bones, and all. About twice a day, they cough up pellets instead of passing all that material through their digestive tracts. The pellets make a great record of what the owls have eaten. The female barn owls are a little showier than males. She has a more reddish and spotted chest. Heavily spotted females get fewer parasitic flies and may be more resistant to parasites and diseases. They have excellent low-light vision and can easily find prey at night by sight. But its ability to locate prey by sound alone is the best of any animal tested. The oldest known North American barn owl lived in Ohio and was 15 years and five months old when it died. You've been listening to In Nature, a production of WFHB. For Eco Report, I'm Juliana Daly. And I am Cynthia Roberts. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by climate 
global climate disruption, and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in south-central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. Enjoy the full cold moon hike at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, December 23rd. From 7 to 7.45 p.m., join Anthony on Trail 6 for the last full moon of 2023 and hear stories of why it is called the full cold moon. Meet at the Grissom Memorial parking lot. The Whooper Wednesdays will continue at Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area until February 21st. Come to the Visitor Center on Wednesday, December the 27th at 8 a.m. to walk the property and see if you can spot some of the resident birds, including the endangered whooping crane. Make sure to dress for the weather. Learn winter hike preparedness at McCormick's Creek State Park on Saturday, December 30th at 10.30 a.m. Explore the tools and habitats you can use to make your hike safer as you enjoy what makes winter in the woods special. Meet at the Deer Run parking lot. In the 2023 year with a Discovery Trail hike at Brown County State Park on Sunday, December the 31st from 11 to 11.45 a.m. Learn about the flora, fauna, and pioneer history and the interesting geology of Brown County State Park. Meet in the Nature Center parking lot. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Juliana Daly. Today's news feature was produced by Kay Jung and Noah. Well, her husky Snyder. Juliana Daly assembled the script, which was edited by Zero Rose. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the Earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.